Today, it being Thanksgiving week, let's talk about giving thanks. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. As a quick side note here, I'll mention that as I uh, speak through the topic today, uh, I'll use the word gratitude uh, as a statement about the general demeanor of a person, the attitude or character personality that someone brings to this topic, uh, that brings to this part of life, that is. So gratitude is that general expression, character, attitude, so on. Thanks is an expression of gratitude, an expression from gratitude. And then there's thankfulness. And again, these are just the ways I'm using them. I know we could dispute this and there could be other ways of taking them. But then thankfulness, which is very much like gratitude, obviously it's an emotional state like gratitude, but it, it might only come up on certain occasions and then it would be expressed as thanks. So I'll explain the difference I mean, I'm not going to focus on the vocabulary. I just want you to know how I'm using the words as I'm using them. But I think you'll recognize the difference as we're talking about it because there are, there are just two points I want to make. One most significant point I want to make, and then a second. And each of them has to do with, with saying that we should not do it the normal way, uh, but instead should do something better than that. And I, I don't, by normal, I don't mean that other people haven't seen this or said that we should do it. I just mean our, our attitude generally can go in the wrong direction and can limit how we give thanks, I think, uh, preventing us from experiencing what Thanksgiving is really all about. And I don't mean the holiday. I mean that uh, experience that we have of giving thanks. And so, um, so, so first, let me, let me say this. So there are two things. The first one is this one. When we're giving thanks... We should give thanks not for the way we wish things were, but for the way they are. Uh, And I know that doesn't sound like much, but actually that's a a pretty big deal. And it's fairly challenging to get across this wave, to get across this hurdle. So give thanks not for the way you wish things were, but for the way they are. And if you say to yourself, well, why would I give thanks for the way I wish things were? I mean, they're not that way. That's why I don't give thanks. Actually, I think the way we experience thanks naturally, like without thinking about it, without being focused on it, without having a transformed character or personality, I think the natural way we experience thanks is that, simply as an expression in response when we have these little moments when things are the way we wish they were. And then we give thanks for it. And that's not how we're commanded to give thanks. And I won't just stick with commands, but I will start with commands. And not not saying do it. (laughs) You know, you have to do it. But I mean, 
let's rehearse a couple of the times when in Scripture, and uh, I'm, I'm speaking mainly to believers, uh, but, I'm, but I'm speaking to everyone. I think this is a, a healthier way to live. Obviously, we believe that about everything God commands us to do as believers. So I would say it to everyone, but the commands in the Scripture are pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, the two examples that I'll give first, just from the New Testament, and then I'll give examples from the Old Testament and outside of that, but the two examples I'll give are 1 Thessalonians and Ephesians, the two most obvious passages that speak about how we're supposed to give thanks, and they, and they speak about it in a way that makes it obvious that we're not supposed to be giving thanks for the way we wish things were, but for the way they are. So 1 Thessalonians 5, I'll start in verse 16. You know, he has this little triumvirate of things that we're supposed to do constantly, rejoicing, praying, giving thanks. Those are the things we're always supposed to do, and they're expressed that way. So in verse 16, rejoice always. In verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. And none of these are you know, trite claims about the hours of the day or the seconds in a minute, uh, you know, that, that you have to make sure you don't pause in your prayers for, you know, a stop sign. It's not that. It is this statement that we have a consistency and a persistence to our commitment to this demeanor, rejoicing, to this activity, praying, and to this expression of giving thanks. So we're rejoicing always, praying without fainting, without giving up when we would be discouraged. We're giving thanks in all circumstances, so in each circumstance as it arises and so on. And then it says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, that part's easy. We say, oh, well, that's the reason we're supposed to rejoice in it. We see this in other passages that we'll talk about later, but uh, that's the reason we're supposed to rejoice. This is the reason we pray without quitting because we realize God's will is present in this and we want to conform ourselves to God's will and also pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? It's fundamental to being a believer. So rejoice all the time, pray without ceasing, give thanks in every circumstance. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, however broadly the, the this is referenced to. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So because we have, we're under God, we can rejoice, pray, and give thanks all the time. Fine. And then verse 19, though, he goes on to say, do not quench the Spirit. Because we realize now in the will of God, we have something to rejoice in even when it's difficult. He's not saying this about when we won the game. He's not saying it about when everything went right because everybody's already rejoicing in those moments or giving thanks in those moments. He's saying it about those moments when we would be discouraged enough that we don't even want to pray anymore, right? So he's saying you have to recognize that the will of God is in here. How? Well, the Holy Spirit's doing something in us, and we don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. We also, but also in verse 20, he says, and do not despise prophecies. Remember all of those testimonies in the Old Testament about despising the prophets themselves because we don't want to hear bad news, but the bad news is what we need sometimes. And so anyway, he's saying, so you have a reason to give thanks for all of these things. But then in verse 21, in the midst of having said, consistently and constantly rejoice, pray, give thanks. Don't snuff out the work that the Holy Spirit's doing in you and don't fight against the prophetic words that God is introducing into your life. But, verse 21, we're not doing it naively or glibly. Well, I guess it's good that terrible things happen. That's not what we're saying. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 21, but, but test everything and then determine 
what to hold fast to and what to abstain from. Hold fast what is good. Some of it's good, some of it's not. Well, there's some kind of independence between being good and being able to give thanks for it. And the independence is present in the will of God, that I'm able to give thanks for whatever it is God is doing with this, not just the thing itself. So I don't have a, a naivete about it. I'm able to bring uh, a, a way of thinking about it that tests things and says, so. but I want to hold on to the things that are good, and I want to abstain from every form of evil, not just, not just you know, the puritanical sense of sin and the list of things that we think are bad to do, but every form of evil, every form of confusion, everything that's going on that doesn't contribute to the goodness, not just the things that can be given thanks for, because we realize God can make good out of everything, doesn't make everything good. All right, so anyway, you get all that idea in 1 Thessalonians 5, and we, we've talked about those things before, and I know you've heard that a, a billion times, maybe only a million, but whatever. So the things we acknowledge in this is, are, number one, there's a distinction between good and evil to be made. We're not compromising that by acknowledging that we can still give thanks for everything. And then, sec- and if you say, well, it doesn't, it's not thanks for everything. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. Actually, it does say that as well. But this also, that our response to those things is different. Our response to the good is different from our response to the evil. We embrace the good. We reject the evil. That's why we test them. What, what do, what's not different, so our response in terms of embracing or rejecting is different. What's not different is our confidence that God is going to make all things good, that he's going to, in the end, make all things right. Again, that doesn't mean the instantiations themselves are now good. Oh, thank heavens, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. It's not that. Their sin was evil, and it was wrong, and it shouldn't have happened. But they did it in rebellion. That does, that's not good, but what God makes of it is good, which is not a testimony to the goodness of their act. It's a testimony to the power of God and to the goodness of God. Okay, you get the idea. So that's in 1 Thessalonians 5, the first thing to recognize. So in that case, you can see, right, in those statements that what we're not doing is picking and choosing moments that we think are worth giving thanks for and giving thanks for those. Once we adopt this demeanor of gratitude, this way of living that makes us people who give thanks in every circumstance, then we can no longer simply give thanks for things that turn out the way we thought they should have been. That's how it should have been. Oh, it turned out that way. Oh, thank you, Lord, that it turned out that way. Well, it's nice to give thanks for that, but we can't limit it to that, or we would, we would be violating this very simple command in 1 Thessalonians 5. So again, I'm saying it, it's, we give thanks not for the way we wish things were, but for the way they are. Ephesians 5 makes the same point, in, in a little, but, but a completely different focus. So when he says in Ephesians 5, he's telling us how to be children of light, not children of darkness, and so on, he says, do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I'm reading this for a reason, because he's about to say to give thanks. So we're as we're doing this, being filled with the Spirit, what we're doing is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, 
giving thanks always and for everything to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. In all of these things, what we're doing is really allowing the Holy Spirit then to be what shapes our response to every situation, which makes us people who have to be gratitude, grateful for what God is doing in every situation. And that gratitude is constant. It's constant even in sorrow, and part of the expression of that, and, you know, I've been going through the Psalms lately. I'm all all the way up to Psalm 40. We'll mention a little bit of Psalm 41 today because I'm working on that this week for next week. And as I'm working through the Psalms, it is overwhelming how many of them are expressions not from a moment of blessing, but from a moment of despair. How many of them are expressions that say, how long is this going to continue, Lord? When will you deliver us? And in that context, you know, it makes you think of some of the spirituals that are, that were written in the context of slavery and then immediately outside the context of slavery, just after slavery had been abandoned. Like, so especially during the you know, the great awakening periods in American revivalism and so on, a lot of these spirituals were arising as communications from people who were as oppressed as anyone could ever be. And I, I think of one particular famous uh, spiritual, and I copied the lyrics here to, just to read for you so that you would hear this, for this reason, because as Paul says these words, that we should be filled with the Spirit and giving thanks always, that this is one of the expressions of it, one of the parallels to giving thanks always, and, and, and giving thanks may simply be uh, an expression of this act of addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's our response instead of I mean, why, look, why do people get drunk? It's self-medication in some way or another. This is what you're doing. So uh, somehow making yourself oblivious to the world. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not trying to be psychological here. I'm not pretending I've got some degree in understanding addictions and why people do the things they do. I'm not pretending any of that. But I'm just saying it's not super complicated. I mean, people get drunk because they want to become oblivious to the world. It's a, it's a sense of escape, right? Same reason. I, I, I'm not even, I'm not, I'm not even belittling it right now. Even though I don't drink, and I, I, I like saying don't drink. You know, it's a good thing not to do. Whatever. I don't really care about any of that right now. It's that people do the same thing with video games and movies and novels. Okay, so I get it. But that's why you do it. You're doing it to get away from stuff. And in this moment, what he's saying is, we're not trying to get away from anything. We're filled with the Spirit so that even in those circumstances when we might want to run from it, instead, we're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so in those spiritual songs, you know, obviously, I mean, just in the vocabulary of it, we're drawn to the spirituals that came out of slavery. And one example is uh, the balm in Gilead, right? You know this song. I mean, it's in some hymnals. Uh, there is a balm in Gilead, and the, the, the way the chorus goes is this, the refrain. There's a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. And you sing this to each other, and it becomes an expression of thanks while you're in need of a balm to bring healing to this deep wound in your soul, in your community, in your sense of hope for the future. All of those things are damaged. And yet you sing together in this aesthetic experience that invites the transcendent heaven to become imminent. 
And in that moment together, you're expressing, even in your sorrow, thanks that there is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There's a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I feel discouraged, the verse goes, and think my work's in vain. But then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. And then the chorus, there's a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There's a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. If you cannot preach like Peter, the chorus goes. I mean, the next verse goes. If you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus and say he died for all. In those comforting words to each other, in those, and, you know, I get, uh, it, if you read about spirituals, you know that they're, they're written, in a lot of ways, they reflect this in, in a powerful way that a lot of Christianity doesn't do. They reflect early Christianity's subversive nature to the empire, to the power that was against them, because the balm in Gilead is also, you know, a reference, for example, to these Old Testament passages about how there is a balm, but God is going to bring down those who, for instance, force their people to work without wages. And so that famous passage in the Old Testament is certainly slipping its way into the chorus here. There's a balm in Gilead. There's a sense of vindication. God will make this right. But singing this together, singing a lament together, even think of how this happens at a funeral, even grieving together in the context of death allows us to experience in that community a reminder of this transcendent presence, this will of God that goes beyond the moment of pain, the momentary losses that we suffer in this life, and experience instead a reminder that we're filled with a spirit that gives us a character and a demeanor that's inherently grateful because God still looks down on us. God still condescends to hear our needs. And so you get that idea from Ephesians 5 as well. So he goes on to say, giving thanks always, this is in Ephesians 5.20, and, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got those ideas from the passages themselves that tell us to give thanks always for all things, right? So, okay, we've got that. But then there's also an internal sense that we have because we're created as beings who want to give thanks. That in, in those, and these come in the circumstances. So we're thankful creatures, meaning when things do happen that we hope will happen, we want to return thanks for it. So that's in our nature. I say it's in our nature, not just randomly. I mean, uh, I've mentioned to you before, we did a whole, uh, a whole episode on this, uh, probably a couple of episodes on prima facie duties and obligations and how they go with actual duties and how they fit together to give us an ethic. And in that ethic, W.D. Ross's ethic, he has these prima facie duties, these things that we have an emotive sense are a part of who we are. This, this has to be the right thing to do. And the way he lists them, there are six or seven, depending on how you divide them up, but I think there are six different prima facie obligations that we have. Promise, keeping, gratitude, reparations, generosity, self-improvement, non-maleficence. The second one on the list, and they're not a hierarchy, so it's not like second makes it the second most important, but they are given in a way that is most obvious. And the second most obvious one that we have after promise keeping, and promise keeping might sound uh, very narrow or restricted, but it's not. It just means you mean what you say. It, it just means you do what you said you were going to do. Yes means yes, and so on. After that one is gratitude. 
that it, it it's it's like the worst of all things for a person to be the kind of person who would receive something that's a gift, who would be blessed with something and not have any sense of gratitude for it. What what kind of lowly person would do such a thing? I'll mention the kind of lowly person who would do that in a minute, but as an example from a movie, by the way. Uh, but we'll get to that. But it, but it's built into us to do this. So we don't have to have a command from heaven to give thanks, to know that giving thanks is right. We also have something built into us, an emotive state, that just says we should give thanks uh, when we have the opportunity. This is what I think Paul is playing off of this. He knows it. He's he's playing off. He's certainly playing off of the, the Greek philosophers, uh, the, the not, not just the Stoics, but more importantly, the Epicureans, when he's giving us in Philippians 4 the command for how that attitude that we're supposed to have, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And I won't exposit this passage for you right now, but it really is a brilliant statement. The Lord is at hand, uh, meaning your, your determination that you can always have joy is based in the fact that you know the Lord is always nearby, that he's always here, he's always present. And so he says, in this context of rejoicing always and making sure your moderation is known to everyone, he says, don't be anxious about anything. So in the context where you would be anxious because something's going wrong, so you have a stressor, do not be anxious about anything, but instead, by in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's not that you don't have a request. It's not that you don't recognize this is not good, but it is that you're still able to say, and yet, Lord, on my knees before you, I lift my song, I raise my request, and I say it with thanks. Thank you that I can bring this to you. Thank you that you have a purpose in it, even if I can't see it, and so on. Okay, so you get the idea from Philippians 4. And, uh, you know, here's the thing that I was talking about a moment ago when I said, we just know we should be this way, and who wouldn't be this way? Uh, gratitude is only as sincere. And I, look, I don't mean by sincere here uh, the idea that uh, when a person gives thanks in the moment because they received a great gift and, you know, oh, thank you so much. I'm not saying you're insincere as in hypocritical, but I mean the depth of the sincerity. And so that's what I mean by as sincere. It's not that there's no sincerity when you're giving those shallow thanks. And I do mean shallow. I, I don't mean they're not real, but they are shallow. But gratitude, gratitude, the at, remember, this is the attitude or demeanor we have about life in general. It's always present. Gratitude is only as sincere as it is constant. So I, I, I so back in, the, in 1995 or 96, I think this movie came out, Babe, that I always loved. And it's, I know it's a, it's, it's a silly movie for me to love. I, I know it makes me weak in some way. But it just kills me. I mean, I just love it. I haven't seen it in 10 or 15 years. I haven't seen it in ages. I need to watch it again. Now that I'm bringing it up, I, got, I have to watch it again. It makes me cry. Uh, love the movie. You know, it's the pig movie, right? So fantastic movie. In the middle of it, though, there is this scene that I just find hilarious and, and so telling and oh, so unfortunately true in certain circumstances when, uh, you know, the grandfather, the the pig master guy, whatever his name, whoever it is, uh, when he uh, when he's made this magnificent handmade wooden dollhouse for his granddaughter and and something else for the boy, I can't remember what it is, and 
I, I didn't go back and watch the scene, but <laughs> when he makes this and he gives it to her, she opens it and she sees it. And we all know it's a magnificent gift. And who knows how much time he spent preparing it and so on. And her only response is to scrunch her face and burst out in tears. And I wanted something. And they did whatever it is she wanted, you know, a dolly or whatever. And you just think, oh, my soul, what kind of ingrate is that who would respond that way? But you see, that that kid, if that kid had gotten, and I know it's a movie, I know, I know it's a fiction, although there are plenty of examples of this in real life. I mean, you just look them up. You can Google them and see ridiculous responses to gift giving but uh, and ungrateful responses to gift giving. That response is testimony that what we're willing to give thanks for is only the things that we expected the world to be like to begin with. So if you don't conform the world to what I wanted, I'm not giving thanks for it. That's where most of us live. To the extent that gratitude, to the extent that the expression of gratitude, thanks, is only occasional. So in reality, only thankfulness is present. To the extent that thanks is occasional, that it's punctuated, that it's staccato in our lives, Thanks is more about expectation and demand than humility or acquiescence. It's not gratitude. It's satisfaction. I am satisfied. Ah, thank you, God, for preparing a meal that met my culinary desires. That's what we're doing when we give thanks occasionally. And I'm, I, I'm mocking it in some ways. I'm belittling it. All of us live there. I'm, I'm not belittling a person. I'm, 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 I'm saying to all of us, we should be ashamed. Picking and choosing moments of thanks for us is, is just acknowledging that we have set our expectations for what's good enough and what's not good enough, and that we, in our moments of approving of what God has done, are willing to give thanks. It's sort of like patting God on the head and saying, good enough. Yeah, that was good enough. Thank you. Thank you so much. And next time you do something good, I'll give you credit as well. It's, that crushes me. That crushes me to think that that's how we relate to God. I get it that a, a person who hasn't encountered the transformation that comes with meeting Christ, and I mean that, you know, the transformation that comes with understanding that he is Lord, that he's the one who rose from the dead. I get it that that's how we would live our lives, but once we've encountered the Holy Spirit, once we've encountered the reality of God's transcendence becoming imminent in us, it's, it's devastating <laughs> to realize that we still hold God up to this test to see if he has met our sense of expectation and demand for the world. So if your thanks is only an expression of satisfaction with the way the world is, you see why I'm saying what I'm saying. That's not gratitude. <laughs> that's just, well, that's good enough. You've, you've met the need. And so this is why I said the expression the way I did, don't give thanks for the way you wish things were, but for the way they are. You get the point I'm making. Uh, so, you know, I think the perfect example of this that shows up in, in our Messiah, and it shows up in the Old Testament, and uh, it, it, it's easy for us to see where it would show up in our lives. And in fact, for a lot of us, it has shown up in the way we think about other people in our culture, uh, in the way we relate to our enemies. Uh, Psalm 41, the one I'm working on now, 
has this little section in it that makes this point. Now, I know it'll be a part of the message that I end up getting out of Psalm 41 because it's such an important part of the passage. But in it, he's expressing his delight. So this is what he says. I'll just read it to you. Psalm 41, 11. By this, I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. The psalm is this, uh, and I, I won't go into all the details because I'll have a tendency to break into, you know, trying to expose the whole thing. But the psalm is this really, it's, a, it's one of the clearest expressions of the tension between what the psalmist is actually experiencing in the moment, which is a sense of abandonment and illness and failure and whatever, and being oppressed by the enemies. And what he knows is the promise of God that will be fulfilled, that he believes in, and therefore expresses his thanks for it as well. So by this, I know that you delight in me. I know it now, that my enemy will not shout in triumph over me. Mm, They might be doing it right now, but they're not going to. The day is going to come. However you put those together, you have to deal with that contrast. Well, that's what Paul is bringing forward when he says it in Romans 8, and this is what Jesus is demonstrating on the cross, in the garden, and throughout his ministry. In Romans 8, it comes out this way, and I'll read several of these verses to get the point across. So, And he's writing this to Christians who are so discouraged by the persecution they're facing that they're ready to give up. The Roman Empire is tormenting them for being believers. And he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, this is what we say, if God is for us, who could be against us? It might be a question. If God is for us, who can be against us? But how do we play that out? Well, this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also now with him graciously give us all things? So he's assuring them that the promise is well-grounded. It's legitimate. God has promised he's not going to betray you. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, I mean, the people who are doing it are there. The Romans will do it, for instance. But then he's making the point that that's not going to endure. It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Now, remember, this is in the context of David having said, my enemy will not shout in triumph over me. I know you will delight in me. I have a reason to praise you now he says. So who's to condemn? Paul goes on in verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us now. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? And then he names all the things that in this moment make us want to say, I'm not giving thanks for this day. I've got tribulation, I've got distress, I've got persecution, I've got famine, nakedness, danger, executions, the sword. I have all of those things that give me a reason not to give thanks. And Paul says, is tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword greater than God or the promise that he demonstrated he would fulfill in the resurrection of his own son? who faced every one of those things and yet rose from the dead. And so he says, as it's written, for your sake, we're killed all the day long, but it's for your sake. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but we're your sheep. And then he goes on in verse 37 to say this, nope, in all these things, we are more than conquerors because we're conquerors through him who loved us. We're not conquerors waiting to win the victory so that we can give thanks. We are conquerors because we are already loved by the one 
who won the victory. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, I'm adding in context from the sense of gratitude that God has given us. That's why we don't thank him for the way we wish things were, but for the way they are, because he is sovereign over all of it. Okay, one one more part then. I said, don't give thanks simply for the way things you wish were, but for the way they are, right? The second one is this. Giving thanks isn't simply an expression, but a communication. So don't give thanks simply as an expression. Give thanks as a communication. Now, again, the attitude, that is, the gratitude that we have as a part of our character, as a way of seeing the world differently than the way we used to see it, which all of us need to mature into. I'm not pretending I have this. I'm I'm the same way in bad traffic as everybody else. Well, not everybody else. I mean, I've learned to restrain myself in a lot of ways. But the point is, I have as many challenges as everybody else does about this. And when people are attacking me, I have that same self-defensive posture and, you know, oh, woe is me kind of mentality that everybody else has. I, I, I know the struggles that make this challenging. I'm not being Pollyanna-ish about it. I'm saying that as we mature in Christ, our demeanor will change. And our gratitude will not collapse into thinking everything's good because we'll still discern between good and evil. We'll know what to hold on to and what to reject. But at the same time, it will be constant. But in that constancy, it can't simply become this thing that we're constantly having as an attitude or a thought or something we're throwing on an expressionist canvas, uh, speaking into the air, but instead something we're sharing with other people. It should be, it should uh, come out into uh, a communication. And so uh, in converting that to a communication, there are just three little points that I want to make. I won't take as long on this one as I did on the first one. But this is what gratitude, gratitude can be perceived, and a lot of people say this, it's overflowing, right? I'm full to overflowing, and so I want to express something of gratitude, something that, that gratitude is taken that way makes sense to me. I there is a, an ar, I, I haven't ever found this etymology, but I know there is some archaic word in English because there are certain poems that use the word this way, uh, that grating is actually overflowing. And whether you use that word or not, and I, I don't think that's where the etymology of grateful comes from, but it sure is a happy, uh, a convenient circumstance, right? A happy coincidence that gratitude is this expression of overflowing with having received grace, Uh, not just goodness in the moment, although that does contribute to it. I mean, certainly receiving good things makes us thankful for those good things that we've received. And so we have a sense of gratitude as overflowing. And the, the idea of gratitude as overflowing is that we've received so much that is that grace has been so abundant, gifts, right? Gratia, gratia, that we have received so much that it's just got to spill out, that we're bursting over, that it would be wrong to hoard it for ourselves. 
and I, I, I can say all of that, and I can say it completely abstractly, but to, you know, to give application to it, let me illustrate it first with an illustration we pulled from the Psalms a long time ago, uh, you know, a year ago or so. And that is, you know, one way we visualize this is in returning to God the things that he's given to us. So he's poured so much into us that we return a portion back to him in simple expressions of gratitude. So thankfulness that we communicate to him. It's like, and this is the illustration that I gave, which is, you know, the mists uh, rising from a field to to return that little, little tiny portion of the water that God had poured out from the heavens to give us an abundance. He pours out in rains and floods, and and yeah, we respond in nothing but a vapor or a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away, but but it is the appropriate response to the abundance that he's poured into us. And so that's one sense of thinking about this as, you know, gratitude, the natural outflow of an abundance that's so great that we can't simply hoard it. Another way of perceiving that, that recognition that there's just too much for us to hold on to is in sharing the emotional experience we have of thankfulness, of gratitude in that moment uh, with our loved ones. This is what a lot of people will be doing for Thanksgiving, meeting around a table and, hey, let's give a testimony and somebody talk about, give a thanks for somebody at the table or tell us what's been good for this year for people who do that kind of thing at the table. And for other people, it will simply be being in a room with someone they love, with people they care about, and just having to say, oh, I'm so thankful for this or that or that they were able to come this year or whatever it is, it will find its way out of that person. They just are overflowing with it. I think uh, my deepest experience of this came in my uh, papa. I mentioned my my dad's dad when he died uh, when I was in my early 20s, and uh, we were all standing around the the, the hospital bed, his, his family was, his immediate family was all standing around him. And uh, he, he had been unconscious for a couple of days. If I remember right, I can't remember how long, but he wasn't able to speak or do anything. He was weak and, and he just wasn't recovering from a surgery that he'd had because of lung cancer. And, and so we knew that he, his death was imminent. And we were watching his breathing and the nurses had said it and everybody, you know, everybody had told us that it was going to happen any time. And just before he died, he had that surge of energy that a lot of people get right before they die. They breathe more strongly. They regain consciousness. You know, these strange moments of clarity happen, which is a testimony, by the way, that that happens so, so consistently. And it's, it's very common. I, I hear it all the time. Um, and I, I don't know what the percentage is. I just know it happens all the time. Uh, it's a gift from God, you know, that that happens. And so with my papa, it happened also. And and he, he couldn't regain fully his consciousness, and he couldn't speak out. He, I think he even had a tube down his throat. But it, but it was obvious that he was awake again and aware of our presence. And right before he died, what he was expressing to us was that he loved us. And not just that he loved us, but I could tell him. Mean, it was the first time I'd ever seen him this transparent with his emotions, uh, that he just could not say it strongly enough. I love y'all so much is what he was communicating. And, it, you know, it was, a, it was a gift in that moment. And that's an overflowing of what God had given to him, a family that loved him and cared for him, even in that worst moment at the very end of our life in this world. You know, another, another sense of this gratitude simply being an overflow, that it's a natural overflow of the goodness that God has poured into our lives in some way, is 
knowing the debt that we have to our community. That is that, you know, in those, in those moments when we're expressing thankfulness, we, we need to have a sense of the others who've made it possible for us even to exist to receive the graces that God has given to us. We don't bring ourselves into existence. And so there are a bunch of different ways that we could express that, but you get the idea. So here's, here's what I want to give you as, as you as we approach Thanksgiving or maybe you're in Thanksgiving or coming out of it now as you, as you hear this. I, I, just, I just want to make the point that we, and I pray that we make our memorial of an occasion for giving thanks also to be this, a reminder that the God who underlies our gratitude never changes. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Cream. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.